0: Welcome to Brew Theology. Don't forget to share the brew.
1: All right everybody, that was Caroline Jane Miller and this is Ryan Miller. Welcome to the Brew Theology podcast. This is a microcosm of what we do every Thursday night in Denver, Colorado. In fact, we have seven other communities around the country. If you want to know more how to, you know, partner and sponsor and have a little chapter, go to brewtheology.org and there's like different levels, right Janelle, such as like the wheat beer the pale... I don't even know what they mean anymore.
0: I don't either. The double whiskey barrel stout.
1: Yeah. So that's like levels of like how intense you want to go into this brew theology thing.
0: And, and if you don't see one that really speaks to you, just talk to us anyway. We'll figure something out.
1: Or you can be like somebody who ordered curriculum last week. Yep. And they don't want the logo because maybe they can't do the beer logo. Here's the good news. We have a coffee and tea logo. We
0: do. And it's beautiful. It was done by our friend Kyle Ramsey Sumner. And... What's his website? What's his website? rsdesigns.com
1: go for the com. yeah go for the com. when in doubt <laughs> yeah and he also Kyle is a, a former brew theologian is now living in Tallahassee his wife Piper is going to start a tally brew theology I think this fall yeah, yeah. that's going to happen
0: yeah his website is creativemarket.com forward slash rs design co if you need a design made he's your man
1: and he does Theology Matters, because yep. we like to partner with people like Kyle, also people like Homebrew Christianity. Shout yep. out to Trip Fuller in, now he's in North Carolina. I was going to say yeah. LA, because I have a glass in front of me, and it is from Theology Beer Camp in LA Woo-hoo! from two years ago. Yeah. And we're, we had one in Denver last year, and we're going to have another one in Denver later in the year, and then we're going to have uh, the 10-year anniversary celebration in Asheville, yeah, North Carolina, a month after we come back from Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. So that's we gonna,
0: love North Carolina, yeah. apparently.
1: So, this is a big deal with the homebrewed and brew theology. We have a pre game event, which is 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. on August the 15th. That's a third. Is that a Thursday? I should mm, have. Yeah, sure. I think it's a Thursday. Yeah. And then we have three full days <laughs> of unlimited beer. Go to theologybeercamp.com. You can pre register for uh, our little boot camp at the beginning where we'll have coffee yep. and then beer donuts later in the day. And beer. Do- donuts. Probably some pizza in there. Probably. You gotta have pizza if you're drinking.
0: But we'd really love to have you join us. Yeah. It'll be a ton of fun. It's gonna be three days of craft
1: nerddom. Yeah. If you even if you don't like beer, you can have coffee and just nerd out all weekend long. So this will be our third time to do it. Speaking of North Carolina, we've got Wild Goose Festival coming up July twelfth through the fifteenth. Janelle and I will be there. We have a yep. booth on the main road. We'll have a podcast at the Goose Cast Stage. And we have a demo, interactive demo, where you can participate in that and be a part of the Brew Theology community for just uh, an hour or two.
0: And then on the side, I'll be presenting Women Experiencing Faith Project, which is a book of essays that will be coming out in the fall. And so I'll be presenting that and talking about it as well.
1: Yeah, so head over to wowgoosefestival.org. Get your 25% off with this code. It is all caps, GOOSECAST18. So GOOSECAST18, that gets you 25% off. So thank you, listeners appreciate your support and if you do want to support us we do have that option as well so that's the last thing before we get going i think that's it okay share that brew as caroline said all right tonight we are talking about uh paradox exploring paradox in religion and secular life this was written by our good friend across the table rob carroll Mm -hmm. lives in the platte park neighborhood in denver colorado so uh Rob, yeah, this I, I kind of want you to guide us through this. We do have conversational guidelines before we get going, but I will say my ADHD brain tonight might take over, and so I really need you to make sure it doesn't because this this paradox stuff's got me in in a sort of good AD, ADHD way. Yeah, <laughs> I was just telling like Janelle that I need I need to walk around like maybe I have this long cord here some night because this one's fun. I loved it, so thank you for the content. The cu- guidelines are. No soapboxes, which we all know. Nobody gets the last viewpoint or the last word. We respect everybody and their viewpoints. We extend courtesy by listening well. And even if you think what somebody says is maybe idiotic or silly or you're fighting with that a bit internally, maybe ask a nice follow-up question um, as opposed to putting somebody in the corner. And then, yeah, this last one, everything's up for discussion, means we have rabbit trails and we actually affirm rabbit trails in all of their glory and every now and then rob you may need to shoot the rabbit in a metaphorical way
2: (laughs) janelle we're going to need your help with that also we need to do introductions so
1: we we do this within about 30 seconds and i know that everybody has heard mostly janelle and i because we're on every episode but this could be their first time listening if they've gotten through the intro
0: yeah if they survive that if
1: they survive that and so i uh, i grew up southern baptist evangelical state of texas and I actually have people close to me around the table tonight who ra- raised me well in a very Bible-believing household. I, w- I will say that the last 20 years after I left college, began to deconstruct a lot of the theology from that. And a lot of you know I-, I-, I took away the Anabaptist part of the Baptist faith, which is really cool if you study the Reformation and church history. And then I got into some Wesleyan stuff, so I'm a little UMC uh, Methodist social liberation in there. Um, got some of that Jewish blood in me. I, I may be half Jewish. I don't know. But I love the first century aspects of Judaism and, and within the person of Jesus. And then I have a little Pentecostal reluctancy flair, uh, more of the mysticism, because I'm, uh, if somebody says God spoke to me, I'm the first person to like not believe you, <laughs> You know, because usually it's going to be something what I think may be crazy coming out of their mouth. However, it's always interested me, like, what's the spirit doing? So I am an evolving Anabaptist method jucostal. With some process, in process, philosophy, leanings, and uh, liberation theology. So uh, that's it for me. <laughs> and right. I'm drinking I'm drinking a peach pail from Lone Tree tonight, which is in the suburbs of Denver. <laughs> and we affirm this drink. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> um, I'm Janelle. I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene. And... We moved here about six years ago in just a couple weeks and left that tradition and now carry the label of Progressive Christian. Um, I have a little house church and do brew theology, working on a book project, so I just am pretty happy with that label, so, all right. And I am Nancy. I am Ryan's mother. I am a Christian who attends a Baptist church.
3: I'm Matthew. Um, I grew up going to a predominantly black church in Park Hill the first seven years of my life. And then there were some issues in that church. The pastor had an affair and things weren't going too well. And so my family and I started going to a um, non-denominational church. And that's where I was encouraged to think a little more than just accept and believe things as they were told to me. And it's also around the time I started getting into philosophy and started um, studying its... I don't know if you'd call it cousin or twin brother, or whatever the- theology. Cause I feel like the two are very similar to each other. And when I got into college, I decided to major in philosophy. So that really began to shape a lot of my ideas about religion and Christianity and what I thought about faith and, to this day, I would consider myself a Christian existentialist because the existentialist movement really resonated with me and was really something that I found not only intellectually like stimulating, but also just spiritually. I found it to be like very much in tune with a lot of um, what's going on in the Bible and a lot of like the struggles that go on there. So, a little bit about me and my spiritual background. Good stuff. Good to have you, Matthew.
2: I'm Rob. Uh, I grew up in a devout Catholic uh, household, priest in the family, and all all that uh, Catholic fun. I was involved in church a lot in high school, into college. Uh, um, Started sort of getting into the Jesuit tradition in the Catholic, um, in the Jesuit sect in the Catholic Church um, through studying education, being really attracted to the uh, education and sort of liberation bent of the, of the, uh, Jesuits and of St. Ignatius, um, favorite authors of Quaker Parker Palmer, who's pretty strongly featured in the notes tonight. And, um, and so I, I'm, you know, I, I'm under the fall under the label progressive Christian. I go to mass every now and again, attend mass in a very different way than I used to. But, um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me.
4: All right, and I am Leah Bright. I grew up going to a Presbyterian church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Fun fact for all you Breaking Bad fans out there, my grandfather's name is Walter White, so it's pretty exciting. That's awesome. Uh, ever since I was little, I loved going to church mostly because they served us donuts and we did not have anything that was sugary in my household. So that was incredibly exciting. Uh, but other than that, the idea of God and faith never really connected with me since I was young and I've never really grown out of that. So uh, I'm a contented atheist living in the absence of belief of anything existing, but always open to the opportunity to, to learn something more and for something to be out there.
1: A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated may express a possible truth. And then uh, you've got a great quote by your man, Parker Palmer. You have broken this up into categories. So scarcity and abundance, which we'll probably talk about all these, vulnerability and courage, solitude and community. And if if you could just help listeners who they don't have the content in front of them right now, could you just kind of break up scarcity and abundance, vulnerability and courage, solitude and community? And then after you start talking, I'm sure our juices are going to start flowing and we're going to want to talk about one of those.
2: Sure, Ryan. Let me just <laughs> sum those up real quick. <laughs> um, you wrote the content. I know, I know. So uh, one of the things I just wanted to mention at the beginning is part of the reason I started with this Parker Palmer quote from The Promise of Paradox is because. um, the quote is the capacity to embrace true paradox is more than an intellectual skill for holding complex thoughts. It's a life skill for holding complex experiences to take the encounter with the other in quotes who sees a different reality from ours because he or she stands in a different place to a certain extent uh, that other. Uh, quote unquote contradicts our lives, um, and that can be threatening to us as individuals. Uh, if we lack the capacity to hold that contradiction as a paradox, a both and that has potential to open our hearts and our minds to something new, um, then we can fall back into our hardwired fight or flight response. But if we understand the promise of paradox, our encounters with, quote, the other, unquote, have potential to make the world larger, more generous, and more hopeful. So I am a self proclaimed community junkie um, because I think community is like, well, I don't think, sorry. Uh, other people that I've read have said we emerge from community, the family unit, we ultimately return to community and community gives us life in a lot of ways. So, um, I really come to the paradox topic through like experience and through, um, through community as opposed, and like people who are different from me, um, and you can bring the theology in because I'm less, I'm less uh, versed in that world. Um, but that's definitely where paradox comes in for me. And uh, the intellectual discussion of scarcity and abundance, vulnerability and courage, and solitude and community, I think are important. But I also probably approach those in these notes and in this topic from an experiential communal uh, lens and communal approach. So that's kind of how I got to the, the topic of paradox. But were you going to talk about Wesley?
1: Now, I was going to say you just sound pretty Wesleyan, but uh-huh. I mean, at the same time, like whatever scripture you're using in theology within any kind of religion, I think that, uh, the community has to be a part of it because theology and religion, right. Come out of a community. If it's ever in an isolated vacuum, then I'm then talk about being like reluctant and skeptical and, you know, scared half to death, like run fast. So, yeah. I, I like. I think it's a good foundation to start with for sure. So within community, there is, there's paradox.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. Um, yeah. so that's, uh, so and like if paradox exists, cause we, we have like more homogenous communities, we have more, um, heterogeneous communities, things like that, but that's definitely the approach I came to the topic with. And then, um, yeah, I don't know how successful I'll be at trying to like concisely talk about scarcity and abundance, vulnerability and courage, um, and solitude and community. But, um, but scarcity and abundance seemed like a great place to start because, um, in Christianity, uh, you know, again, like the first line of this note is, uh, whether Luke or Matthew wrote it, right. Um, a lot of Christians argue, right. Blessed are the poor. Um, Matthew added in spirit, um, and, uh, and sort of the, the discussion about like our modern world and Christian and, and looking at that Christian passage and what does it mean to, uh, or, you know, what's the, the paradox of scarcity and abundance mean in our lives today, either as people of faith, like as Christians or as people, uh, who don't necessarily ascribe to a faith, but are experience scarcity and abundance in different ways. And we even got into the conversation last week about, um, you know, me as a, as a, uh, um, a person living in Denver and thinking about scarcity and abundance and my desires to, uh, to own a home in Platte park, which I don't currently own. Um, you know, I rent here and things like that and, and what that might bring into my life or, um, or, you know, is my life great right now? And my, and it, what we were talking about in an economic sense, because if you don't live in Denver and you're listening right now, um, Denver is, has become a very expensive oh, place yeah. <laughs> for a lot of people. So anyway, that was my rambly start to scarcity and abundance, but I don't know. I mean, a good, a good way to start might be to say, do any of the paradoxes of scarcity and abundance, vulnerability and courage or solitude and community resonate with people around the table? If so, why? Um, And then are there other paradoxes in the religious, religious or secular world that help you explore more transcendent truth? So we really didn't have a big question to start here either. Holy cow, that's several hours, but maybe that's a good way to start. Any of these resonate with people around the table in particular?
3: For me, one that really resonated was the solitude and community one. And when you were just talking about community, I was thinking about how a lot of times you can feel like lonely within this so-called community, depending on what that is and like how that makes people feel. And as someone who's always considered myself a bit of a lone wolf, the whole paradox really resonated with me because... For a lot of people, they see the word solitude and they're like, "By myself," and it's like, "Oh, are you just to be by yourself, crying, like, and like lonely all the time?" And it's it's and there's a very negative association with people that just want to spend some time like by themselves. And for me, that resonated because a lot of time that I use it was like renewal and what I find very like t- time that I spend with God is by myself. But also, too, community has been a source of strength for me when I've been going through very tough times in life. And so, really. I think seeing those two as opposites of each other maybe isn't the best way to see it, but to seeing if it is like part of a continuum um, that depends on like who you are as an individual, I think is a better way to see it. Because I think in our society, especially American society, it's like you always have to be in a group and you always have to be like part of this or part of that. And there's not a really lot of space for that like inward search or that time to just spend by yourself.
0: One of the weird paradoxes, though, is that with social media, we can be in solitude and be in or pretending to be in community at the same time. So we're very alone. And often they're finding statistically that we're lonely in the midst of that, but we're in community on our phones. That's total paradox.
1: Yeah, it's true. And what you had said resonated how, I mean, an extrovert like me I love going out in groups, whether it's me and one other dude going out to a ball game or a bunch of people, or even even working back in the day at larger churches when we have big events. Like, I, w- I would get excited about those events. And those of you who know me understand that's just my personality. And that said, like, um, you know, e- even in those large settings, you would see there are extremely lonely people. And I, I, I have to admit, like, I'm sure looking back, if I were to look back at all the gatherings that I have gathered at, whether it's like noisy, crazy, loud, um, or just chill gatherings, like I'm, I'm sure I've been lonely in many of those gatherings too. So just because you're with people doesn't mean you're connecting with people. But at the same time, being, I know, and this is my extrovert coming out and I want to challenge that, like how, if you're just by yourself um, and, if, and it's not leading you to a place of community, um, is, is that valid for the world? If it's If you're just by yourself all the time.
2: And I don't know, One thing I would say is, is Palmer does distinguish between solitude and loneliness. And, and I mean, he's making an argument, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying like, you know, so his argument is that, is that, um, often in loneliness, um, there's a refusal to face oneself. Um, so like, uh, um, in loneliness there's, uh, in solitude there being like, a space, a a place where you're by yourself, but you can go inward and appreciate yourself and reflect on your faith or reflect on your beliefs or reflect on your, whatever it might be, gratitude, some sort of mindfulness practice. Um, and you're doing that alone, like as in alone without other people present, but that's different from loneliness where you are, um, where you are by yourself and, um, and can't, you know, do that sort of inward looking. So he's making an argument there. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I there, it seems like there sh- should be some sort of practice and that aloneness. And for a lot of people, yeah. that's prayer, right? Like that's, that's right. what prayer is.
1: And yeah, and that does make sense. And I, I know that mindfulness meditation, yoga, all those, any kind of prayer, or let me look in the mirror. Let me take a deep breath before I go out into the world. You know, that's, that's probably healthy for everybody. But I'm curious for especially those who are more introverted and like the solitude more than me. <laughs> and so, so yeah. you think Which, we're weird? I'm, no, I'm. I'm just no. R- R- Rob and I are very similar in this department. But I'm. I'm curious how. At what point? Like, how many days can you be by your? Is there like a limit? Is there are there hours of the day? Are there weeks? Are there months? Because the people who are like I'm just, I'm just saying who are just by themselves for like if I were by myself for a week straight and I never had contact with anyone on the outside of my house, I, I think I I don't think I could make it. I really don't. So help me understand this. Well, one, we're
0: not all the same.
1: Amen. That's good. If I were married to myself, I would kill myself.
0: <laughs> um, I think it. I mean, just like anything else, it depends on kind of purposefulness, where you are personally, um, and what, what you're kind of needing in the moment. So often aloneness or solitude for an introvert is recharging. And so reading or watching kind of binge watching Netflix or something like that, maybe really restorative and redemptive. Um, I don't, I don't think I can prove this. I mean, I don't think introverts are any more prone to depression or anxiety than anyone else. But I think that given the nature to pull away and be alone, it can that can get overwhelming really fast if you're not in a great place. And then, yes, you can go weeks or months with very minimal contact with other people and be totally fine, partially because it, it feels like a protective mechanism, um, trying to preserve the self the little bit of it that you might feel you still have control of. Um, but I think it, it varies. Like I, one of my biggest memories was like a three-hour thing we did at camp in college at university camp. And just that three hours of solitude was kind of a like a marker for a long, long time in my life. And I think it's really hard to find those times now because there's always noise. There's always sound. Um yeah, and it just, the other thing it reminds me of this paradox is Martin Buber and and Goffman sociologically talking about how we only are able to define ourselves by the other. I mean, one of the first things that babies do is they define themselves against the other. That's, that's how they know who they are. So even those of us that may be, I guess, more prone to solitude, we're still defining ourselves by being away from the other. Um, in those moments and so our relationship to the other never goes away whether you I think even if you become a hermit you're saying I don't want to be with the other um, so it's a real it's like a constant parent I mean you're living in the swirl of the constant paradox what does it mean to be human what does it mean to live that out in the world um, and what does it mean to have relationships and community um, just depending on who you are
4: Yeah, one thing, Janelle, you said that I really liked is the idea of intention because I think in some ways I see solitude and community as complementary because I think you can be a better human being in community if you've had time to be in solitude and really reflect Mm -hmm. about how your actions impact others and how you show up as your best self and you give yourself that time for introspection and self-reflection. And likewise, I think that you can in some ways be best when you're in solitude, if you've had the chance to interact with others and bounce ideas off of others, and you understand really your your place in the world and how you're showing up in community. Uh, so for me, I see them as very complimentary, and I think you can be your best in community if you've had solitude, and your best in solitude if you've had a sense of community. Yeah.
0: One, and one place I've seen that play out for me is being kind of in the overachiever category my whole life, always kind of carrying that load alone, because that's just kind of how school works when you're in that group. But really working hard as an adult, especially in the last probably six to ten years of trying to be more collaborative and making space and letting there be space to work with others and finding that that really enhances my own ability to be successful when I'm willing to let others speak into what I'm doing. Um, And that probably sounds like a foreign language to you in the sense that you do collaboration naturally. Like it comes so easy for you from the outside looking in, Ryan, it comes so, it seems so easy for me. I mean, it's much more of an intentional choice to like come to the table and do that work. And it's not that I, it's it's so hard to talk about Like it's not that I don't want to, it's just, there's been a, I think a practice in my own experience of like, if it's going to get done, then I need to do it. And being able to set that aside and set aside along with that probably perfection and say, let's, let's come together and figure out what community looks like together.
2: Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause like the, the struggle I think is, is just an interesting point to bring up because like Palmer, for example, is a guy who's gone through two serious, serious de- bouts of depression that he's really open about. And um, so I think, you know, he's, he's, he speaks a lot of wisdom and he would also be the first to say, like, I've been in really, really unhealthy loneliness before. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's just, it's, it's. Uh, I think it's um, important to talk about, like, it. That's the thing about paradox too. Is it's all, it's all. I mean, that it's the struggle, and uh, and and nobody stays right in the middle. Kind of, you know, you were mentioning continuum, Matthew. Like, nobody stays in the middle, and so um, that's what I. That's also partially why this is, you know, endlessly yeah. fascinating too.
1: Yeah. And so, and to bring this even like, so theologically speaking when it comes to the Christian scriptures and you have a guy like Jesus who is, um, you know, he's out he's going from town to town, traveling preaching the good news. He's got massive crowds around him. And yet what does he always do after every big sermon, every big miracle, where does he go? To pray. Yeah. He goes to the wilderness. So here you got, you know, this son of man, son of God guy who's, he's like, I got to recharge as well. And, um, and, and I think, so it's interesting about that, even how, um, the, the weakness, you're talking about the suffering, and the weakness that that's a theology and a philosophy. And even so you bring, bring it, bring in Western, the Western secular world that's frowned upon. That's, um, any kind of like, Oh, we, a weak God or a weak master or mentor or CEO or president. Let's, we can talk about all that. No, you're supposed to be strong and powerful. And yet it's in the weakness of most religions. When you really look at the, 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 deep embeddedness of that theology. And that's where you find the strength of their God or that consciousness or that light or whatever that may be, whether it's Buddhism, Christianity, and yet uh, you have the Western world that's telling us this opposite message. So how, how do we, how do we handle that? Um, if theology is supposed to be practical, cause if it's not, I think it's pointless. I mean, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Is this, is this when that becomes a paradox, your head intellectual theology versus your functional practical theology? Because ultimately, right, I mean, it, I'm speaking from the Christian tradition, but it's a, it ends up being a weak God, and I'm okay with that. Okay, I wasn't going to talk, but here I am. Okay. <laughs> I don't understand how you could say it's a weak God who goes alone to pray. It's, it's weak in how we are told what power and weakness and success and failure is in the Western world. We would look at Jesus as a big wuss today. Even though it takes a lot to be on a cross and be fully exposed as, an, as a naked man saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's powerful. And yet it's in the weakness of him, whether he's fasting in the wilderness, washing his disciples' feet, letting, letting women take down their hair and, and cover him with uh, anointing oil. Like All these things, is, um, it's weakness in the world. And yet it's, it's powerful. That's the paradox.
0: Gotcha. Well, I think, I think Brene Brown, she's quoted in here on vulnerability and courage. I mean, her research is showing us that it's only through that perceived weakness that we find real strength. And I think, so I think that that's a paradox that we're seeing play out very vibrantly in our culture right now is what, what does it mean to be masculine? Um, And that, that often comes with some assumptions about strength and power and force that, That aren't actually like necessary for there to be connection and community and power and leadership, Um, and I think that we're going to have to like do the hard work of examining like the role of vulnerability in relationships and really question some of those extremes to to kind of come to this place where we can acknowledge that Jesus was the all powerful Son of God on Earth in human form and in his vulnerability he was being the best man that he could be in that setting. And that, that we now like in 2018 might see that as weakness. We've got to rip that apart and think about what that means um, in that.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting. Cause like in a practical sense, like, you know, we're, we're um, talking about Jesus here, you know, and uh in a practical sense though, too, like, you know, it's funny. Like there's a, there is a masculinity and a, and a power fullness that I see in like my friends becoming dads, you know, for example, where, you know, if, if you didn't sort of have the understanding of their love for their child, things like that, um, that could be perceived as like the softening of my friend. So, you know, but it's not softening, it's strengthening. So, um, So it's, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that, but I mean, this is a huge topic in, in like higher education is like, how do we talk to college men about vulnerability and about the strength that that exudes? Um, And uh, so I I don't mean for this to become like necessarily a conversation strictly on, on masculinity, but that's certainly what draws me to me as a you know, white middle-class dude in Denver to Brene Brown. I mean, is, is that I think that's a, a uh, provocative conversation and an important one.
1: And you can, you can flip this, too. So masculinity and then femininity. Fem- so f- feminism, which is so weird that, like, I-, I can't wait for, like, these words to just become... I don't know. I mean, I, to get rid of them so that we could all live in this place of true equality. I don't know if we're going to get it in our lifetime or my daughter's lifetime, but it would be, it would be nice. So like, I mean, as women, I'm just curious, what are, what are you told? What is powerful in your world?
4: Well, I think what we're told and what's powerful are two different things yeah. in some ways. You know, we're told to be meek and quiet and subservient and submissive. submissive and loving and caring and to make sure that those that are around us have their needs served first. And I think if you think about what's powerful for women, I think in some ways we're told that our physical beauty is power, that that is the way that we get respect in a lot of ways in the world. And if you think about the initial ways that men go to insult women, it generally has to do with their looks, their physical appearance, uh, insinuations that they're going to conflict violence upon them because of yeah, the more submissive nature that women are expected to have. So I think what creates power for women we are told that you create power through your physical appearance. And I think when you look at... What we're told we need to be we're supposed to be quiet and take care of those around us
1: so the minute that becomes masculine i'm using quotes right now um then you are considered a bitch in the world yeah yes and yet if a male is masculine he's not a dick
0: right okay it's and that's not a paradox that's just a double standard um <laughs>
2: right
1: yeah right. exactly exactly yeah uh,
4: yeah, and I think, you know, it, it. I think the sword cuts both ways in in ways that we are just starting to, I think, really fully recognize that the double standard, if we didn't have it, if we had the ability for there to be more fluidity between genders and to not have these certain traits that have historically defined our genders continue to define us, I think that would create a lot of positivity in the world. I think if you look at college men and the messages that they get and what they're told exudes power and looks like power, I think that creates a lot of destruction in the world. I think if you look at rates of violence and, and the fact that the vast majority of our prison population, they're men. And I think that that's mostly because they get messages, men get messages from a very young age about what creates power for them. And I think that there needs to be more of a balance there between uh, caregiving and, and power and masculinity.
0: And I think one of, the, one of the, the weird things about this is the power of the human, the, the female body to create life is an, a, kind of an ultimate power. It's one that reflects our creator almost more than anything else. And so then the the, offs, um, the wrong desire to want to have power over the one that can create life. Is the thing that makes this even more toxic, and I don't know that many people would say it that way, but I think that's the reality of it. Is whether that's whether you're talking about um, physical violence or control or mental and emotional control and controlling how and when women reproduce, all of those things. Um, it's having control over this power that is the most godlike power that there really is on the planet, and. I think we have to examine that, and and I think if we, I think other traditions and and older traditions have honored women for that ability, and when we've lost that, um, I think it just has consequences we weren't expecting.
1: God is mother, and God is father. That's one of the first so paradoxical language words that I would use with Caroline, when uh, because ultimately the language that she's been given in society is that God is male. And so then I started early with talking about uh, the feminine qualities of God, even though, again, these are like anthropomorphic sort of ideas, and yet God is none of those things at the same time uh, to be more Eastern. And yet that's important, right? I mean, so what is, but what is a father and what is a mother? Um, and that's when...
0: Well, and it's interesting because we often in more traditional Christian circles would say that wisdom is the Holy Spirit, right. is the more feminine trait. Okay, so being wise... Um, being able to discern right and wrong, being able to like figure out what the best path forward is, is the feminine path, and yet we still want to own and control and um, dominate that. And I I think that I think if we could willingly like set down some of the cultural standards we have, and really look at what are some of the theological implications of this, let's even I'll even go as far as let's just set down Genesis two and agree to disagree and look at what's, what is referred to as male and female. And if we were to like examine some of those things and wrestle with them, maybe we would have a much healthier view of what it means to be gendered in this world um, than we do when we're, we're kind of buying into these presuppositions. This is
1: where we need to bring Paula Williams back on the show and talk to her <laughs> yeah. about this yeah. for, from an experiential standpoint. So you brought up Genesis uh, 1 and 2. Let's jump to Genesis 3 for a paradox, okay? So a lot of us have been taught traditionally, conventionally speaking, and this is not on the content or curriculum, but I'm curious how, did you grow up or, or in your understanding of church, was it that uh, there was a fall of humans, mankind, so then now there's original sin? Or did you grow up in the context that says there's original blessing and yeah, humans are frail and they sin? Genesis well, three, you, you my, so, see ADHD, mine went you yeah. said Genesis two and I went to three.
0: Okay, so mine was I grew up with a really um, intentional theology of original sin, one in which um, the only way to have that changed is to have it removed from you through becoming sanctified and holy. And um, that gets into, again, your whole paradox of community and solitude. Um, Because that, in my tradition, became a very solitary pathway. It's my job to become holy and to be sanctified, like let God do that in me and remove original sin from me so that then I am pure. But there wasn't really any um, community aspect of that other than that everyone could judge whether or not I was sanctified. And um, that's damaging and close to abusive if not um so i think that original sin has been used as a control mechanism for people as a way to talk about behaviors we don't like or aspects of humanity we don't like and not really deal with what are people going through in their daily lives as they walk this life as humans
1: did you read danielle is it schroyer or yeah her book original blessing yeah so what, what perspective does that bring? That's, that's definitely different from the upbringing and training that you got just from the title. Um, I'm sure it's different.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's totally different. Like I, it, it takes a lot of work for me to, to really internalize what it means that we were created whole and as the image of God. And then to try to live that out because I'm just, I've always been flawed.
2: Yeah, this is I'm sure there's a Catholic line on this that I don't know.
1: Dude, um, St. Augustine. Come on, man. Right.
2: No, no. I mean <laughs> I mean, um, so I would say, and I've talked about this at brew Theology before, I was not I was not scared by eternal damnation as a child in the Catholic Church. I was I was more, and, and this also could be like regional, like, you know, I was in a Midwestern Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, you know, parish and like my, and it also could have been familial. My, um, my introduction to faith and to Jesus was like salvation. And like, I didn't know what it meant to be saved by the way too, the first time I got asked that question, I said, from what? And they were like, what are you talking about? And, um, and, uh, but anyway, what I was going to say was my, my picture was, uh, so I would assume that my picture, then my personal picture, whether it's the line in the Catholic church or not was original blessing. And, and, uh, but I, you know, I don't know, um, but my vision of, of God and Jesus, like as a, as a child, like a young child was that God, you know, God loves you and, you know, and, and there's, there's, you know, you, you don't want to sin. That's a bad thing. And you go talk to the priest at your, you know, at your uh, at confession, you know, um, and uh, and confess your sins and, um, you know, get your penance. and.
0: It's just because you Catholics want an easy way out. Huh? You well, want someone true. to do it for you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
1: hey, but yeah, so it's funny about that. So you're a Jesuit, yeah. the, you know, the Pope right now. As the billboard says, he is too. And it's kind of funny because uh, he hasn't said this, and I'm not speaking for him, but I'm curious like what he would say off the record because he probably would agree with you because the conventional Catholic teaching is original sin, St. Augustine on. And so then you had, had Calvin who, as a reformer, still said, well, I'll, still, I'll, I'll keep that one. That one seems consistent, and I'll double down. <laughs> and then it got even worse. Um, so, yeah, you have you have a lot of people who have grown up in that um, – Almost like you were saying this abusive, toxic, I am a sinner in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards right there. But then on the other side, I'm mean, you know, you have um, this story of original blessing. And so you're all good and it's all wonderful. And I, I just don't think, I think both of those narratives are probably dangerous. Uh, so I think maybe we could transcend that in a way, like find a third way. There's truth in both. Yeah. But uh, I'm curious what y'all think about that. And we don't have to spend too much time talking about this because there's so much to talk about this But this deals with like the core of humans, and if we're good or bad, um, how, how are you good for society, the work that you do in your family and your job with your kids, all that stuff, or are you just bad for all that? I mean so I think this is relevant, regardless if it becomes theological or
3: not I think like Eastern philosophy ties in really well to this portion because I think it was Parker Palmer he quoted. I think it was Lao Tzu, right? It and quoted Lao Tzu in saying that when I started practicing the Zen, like I thought of rivers and streams or rivers and trees as just rivers and trees. And after a while I was practicing Zen more, I thought of them as different than rivers and trees. I thought of them as something like completely miraculous and beyond that. But then the more I started to practice Zen, I began to just see them as rivers and trees. And so like I think there was there's a good lesson to be learned in that cone that a lot of times stillness and accepting oneself and what that means is a lot of times what it takes to i guess be in a place of healthy spirituality because i don't know i feel like that is one of those paradoxes that just it, it pretty much undergirds all of christianity and all of a lot of other major religions is this 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 dichotomy between either like life's purely a blessing something to be enjoyed or life is a burden like we have to work and like toil out and look forward to the life that may be coming after. And like another interesting parallel that Parker Palmer made was about Marxism and Christianity. And how like, especially in like 1950s America, those two were seen as like polar opposites. Like Marxism was the devil's creation and something that the commie reds did and like something that they were going to destroy the world with, whereas Christianity was going to save the world. But then when you looked at the heart of those ideas, it came down to very simple things like treating the other like you treat yourself. And it, to me, it always has come down to this idea of, of accepting one's inner peace and not trying to change too much. And I thought that one other thing, sorry, he, I'm reading this book right now. So that's why it's like on top of my head is that Palmer talks a lot about um, activism and how a lot of times that or activist starts out as someone who like wants to change the world, has the best intentions in mind, but then it becomes about power and control and about like their own ego and about their, their name being on this movement. Whereas if they had just been still with themselves and accepted who they were as a person and the impact that they could make and not fought that, then they would have been happy with the results and it would have created that movement. Instead, they were fighting it with the ego. And so I, I don't know, I've really been a student of Eastern philosophy for a while. I taught yoga for a while and it was just something I really thought about a lot was this paradox between blessing and between sin and how in Eastern philosophy too, sin is not really something that you don't talk in terms of sin as much as you talk of terms of being of the ego of the Atman as they call it in Hinduism which is that which is separate from the Brahman which is the universal all-encompassing reality. Yes, yeah, so our, our actions can then disturb that peace and that wholeness within
1: the world in and, and ourselves. So it's getting back in touch with that that's already within us
3: and yet beyond us. Exactly, yeah. that's I guess the greatest or the, one of the hardest things to do in life is to do yep. that because we're, and it goes back to the introvert, extrovert thing, because to introverts, it seems natural to want to withdraw and to pull into the self, whereas for an extrovert, it seems natural to want to reach out and to really just be part of that external reality. Whereas I guess true spiritual enlightenment would involve like a perfect balance, which is very hard to achieve in this life.